0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Startups, Sparks and Serendipity. This is Mike and Max and we have a very special guest today and it's Felix. He's based in LA. He's building a pretty cool company that is doing COVID tests and he will talk more about it. But first of all, hey Felix. Hi, good to be here. Yeah, happy to have you. Why don't you give us a very brief introduction about who you are, what you're currently working on and why it's so important. Who am
1: I? Maybe I'll do it slightly longer because I think everything ties into each other. Um, so I grew up in Germany, mainly Germany. Mother Chinese, My dad is German. So basically, living so between Shanghai and Munich, or started out in Düsseldorf and then studied in Munich. And in between, as a child, I lived in Shanghai um, in a monastery actually as a monk. So that was kind of a profound experience for, for me. Um, then I got very obsessed with fitness early on and. Um, started doing mechanical engineering at school and kind of with the founder life started very early for me. So with 18, uh, I found one of my best friends, like first day of college. And we basically decided to throw a party, a big party, because uh, there was none. And that turned into an event management company, um, which we basically used to finance all of our school. Then I went to San Francisco and got immersed in the tech world. That was after okay, like after I had like a brutal failure I had like a brutal failure really early on uh, with a travel agency I started. So we made it, a, we made like a very profitable company, but I was basically screwed over by a partner who was like mm. older than me and more experienced. And um, yeah, I just hadn't seen anyone that malicious before, right? Someone who was just outright malicious and, and willing to just screw someone over like this. So uh, I said, instead of fighting it, I said, okay, I need to kind of do what I'm passionate about, and that technology So I did everything I could to to go to San Francisco. So I did that, Um, finished school in Germany, went to MIT afterwards uh, to work with some friends on a a fitness technology company. Um, I worked on that for two and a half years and uh, exited it about a year ago um, and joined my friend's company, Early Stage Cancer Detection here in, in LA. And while working on on the cancer detection company, um, one of our investors approached us and talked about um, the, the crazy problems he's having procuring COVID tests. So the pandemic was breaking out, it's in full swing, and no one was really able to get people tested. So I jumped on the wagon relatively early, so probably around May, I started looking into it. And we, we started working with different laboratories and helping them um, Redevelop their workflow so they can actually do these high volume tests. And with that cancer company, uh, we were focusing mainly on E2B and movie productions um, because we're in LA, it's very lucrative. Um, but what I saw is that we could build something that would be very important for the consumer, right? Being able for the everyday person to go in and get a test quick and reliably is extremely important if we want to beat the virus. So I started a company about two months ago and it's been growing pretty quickly. Today, we're around 55 employees. Um, by the end of the month, we'll probably hit 100. Um, and we are doing, we are just basically launching these test sites now at a ever-growing pace. We started out with one in Venice, in LA. Now we have five locations across LA County and uh, Washington, DC area. And we're doing another 10 until end of the month. So yeah, it's a quick.:
0: Okay. There, there are a lot of interesting points I would like to build upon, but let's maybe start with the early days and then just go through it chronologically so that we can really dive deep into the businesses you're currently building uh, later. Um, You you mentioned that you were living in a monastery when you were a child. Maybe you can elaborate a bit on that. Uh, Like, why did you live there? And also, did you learn anything that you're currently still using? Or was it just a profound experience?
1: Yeah. So... When I was, So I was growing up in Germany and, and you would characterize my mom in, in America they have a term for it they like call tiger mom which is like a super tough mom like mm. you expect you to be studying all day and that was very incompatible with Germany where everyone is like playing in the sandbox and I'm supposed to like do six hours of piano and then four hours of Chinese. So I was rebelling a lot mm. and um, there goes a lot of friction and, and basically my mom said, hey, I, I want you to go to China to visit the grandparents and live with them for a year uh, between kind of with the what we call elementary school in Germany, then kind of the next section gymnasium, and um, I said I would only go under one condition. And and to me at the time, Jackie Chan was my absolute hero. So Jackie Chan was my my idol. I wanted to basically be him. So I said I would only go under the condition that I am a, that I can live in a monastery and train kung fu like Jackie Chan. And she thought that was a bit crazy, but for her, I mean, it was like okay. Anyways, bring me to brought me to Shanghai, and then we went to that monastery. She actually had one of her best friends bring her son, same age. And so we all went to the monastery. They dropped us two off in the morning. And so we spent the whole day there. And then the, the moms came back in the evening. And the other child was just sprinting out crying. He was just, it was a horrible experience. He just sprinted out crying in the car. He just wanted to leave. And I told my mom, I just want my clothes to be brought to me. I don't want to go. So that day, like from that day on, I stayed for the, one, for the full year. Got my head shaved and... Um, it's pretty amazing. So we had like nine hours of training a day, um, lived on less, of, lived like basically no electricity, um, lived for less than a dollar a day. Like you would wash yourself in like a little pot, the cold water in a little pot from the river, um, and yeah, it was brutally hard. Um, but I think the profound thing that I took away was that the hardship was not felt as hardship. Like when I would explain to someone the exact things that I would do during a day. They would probably think that's like the, the highest form of torture that someone could endure. But for me at the time, when I think back, I like it was very joyful, right? Like I, we were all suffering together. with this little, with my little group, um, with all the other monks um, were doing these insane exercises. And I think it was a tremendous amount of growth. And I think that like I learned how important community is and how relative suffering or happiness is, right? We had less than a dollar a day. I was doing these insane training schedules and I was happy so I think that was um yeah a, a big part of what, what I took away I think also another way it really um stuck with me is one I think hardship is is, is so relative right so what does is, what, is, what does hard really mean by making a company I mean yes you don't sleep much but is how hard is that really and then also physical fitness is extremely important like physical fitness and physical health is extremely important to me ever since then mm.
2: and uh, th- thanks, Felix, for sharing it. Um, quite an interesting story, and I want to want to deep dive one more point. You mentioned that you kind of had your role model with Jackie Ma uh, being kind of your your role model. that You were looked looked to um, in in some ways. But the question I have is, you talked about like the the brutal life in the monastery, but also the let's say the torture that maybe people externally would would see it as. And I I wonder like. How did you overcome the situation of actually seeing that you can still be happy in the circumstance of total suffering and, and, and kind of the hardship uh, throughout the 12 months that you've gone there?
1: I think that beautiful part was because I was just 10 years old. Everything is so relative, right? Like, you don't know what the world's supposed to be like because that's the truth, right? The world is supposed to be like nothing or you can make it whatever you want it to be. So in us, like for a German like, framework, it's like, oh yeah, I know that that's your life. But in China, for these people, that was their life. So you go there and for everyone else, it's normal. So for you, that's normal too. Like one illustration of the like, kind of the, the relativeness of suffering. We had one exercise that was called Wa Tiao. It means basically frog jump. So you go in like a deep, deep squat position and then you just hop. You would see it now like in probably you have like some exercise workout videos you do like maybe go once across the room. We would go for miles, like hours, like the legs would turn blue. You would go for hours and um, you would think that's pretty bad. But then the last person of the group, he would be whipped with a bamboo stick because the, the master is running behind us. Right? So he has a bamboo stick and he would whip you. So you are, you're hopping down there and you're like, it's not that bad. Right. I'm not getting whipped. It's all relative.
0: That's actually, uh, uh, I, I, I like the analogy and I'll, I'll probably start using that whenever I talk about entrepreneurship now, when someone is complaining, I just say Felix, yeah, he had to do frog jumps for miles and he wasn't whipped. <laughs> so what are you complaining about? No, I, I, I totally, <laughs> totally agree that uh, it's often relative and it, it always depends on or often depends on how you look at it and what resources you have to actually cope with it. But, okay, apparently you um, had a great year. You learned resiliency, physical and mentally, I I assume. And then you built your first business with 18, earned some money. Maybe we talk a bit about the actual travel company and the failure. And especially what you learned out of that, because that's probably a, a very... Deep experience as well, I would assume.
1: So I'm 18 years old. I don't know anything about entrepreneurship or that concept, or even thinking about it, right? So mm. my family is a family of scientists. So my dad is a physics PhD. Um, so from the Germans, like my grandpa is like a double PhD, in biology and chemistry. And on my Chinese side, my 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 grandma was a physics professor. So it's all like scientists. Mom's a software engineer. So it's all kind of like scientists and, and engineers. Um, but mainly, mainly science. And my dad went into procurement, so kind of business, buying a bunch of stuff for companies after he finished school. So I thought, okay, he did physics for all these years and then he ends up buying chemicals. It just, I mean, it didn't seem to correlate enough. So I said, okay, what, what can I do that still kind of brings my passion in and, uh, for physics? Because it felt very physics and math was always very easy for me. I was going to combine it with something that I can maybe use. So, mechanical engineering just seemed to be the thing. When we did the first event, we were not even thinking about it as a business, right? So, now thinking back, I don't even think I was like, oh, yeah, we started a business. No, we just like, hey, let's throw a party. There's no party here. And then, wow, we made money. Why don't we just do that more often? That was so fun. And um, so, I think I did that. And from doing that, um, I, I then saw, oh, there's another opportunity. Um, that was not related to my set at all, but I just saw it and was, it was not necessarily a big opportunity. It's just basically every time a high school student graduates, um, usually the whole class goes to do a trip together. And I basically just saw that and Facebook just came up and we're already really good at these Facebook ads and joining these groups and events together. So I was like, Hey, maybe we can just do that. And that worked really well. I think we did about a quarter million in sales in the first nine months for like a 19 year old kid. That's pretty, it's quite a lot. And, quarter million sales is um, a quarter million in profit, essentially, because it's commission-based, right? You have these big packages from the tourism boards or whatever that you get, and you sell it, and your revenue is the commission, and the commission is essentially just profit. But I was just brutally screwed over, right? So nine months later, I find out the papers were forged. Yeah, I, like the brand that I signed off, like all the papers that I basically signed, they were all fake. So all the money that I put in was also gone. And I also realized the whole market that we were in was not a very awesome place to be right so it's a fixed market it's always the same amount of people traveling it's i mean the same amount of people graduating every year and they will be traveling anyways so we didn't first we didn't change the world and secondly the markets i mean it's just basically you need to bat someone else to get that piece of the pie so so that whole thing was was not great anyway so i, I sat back and i was thinking a bit more and um, and realized okay this is this is not what i want to do and they just had this crazy calling that I need to go to San Francisco. Like I just had this crazy calling San Francisco. So 19 years, 20 years old, I needed to go to San Francisco. And I remember now like going back, I still have like applications on my Google Drive. Um, And there's one application that's like, I think the funniest, I I wanted to go there so bad, I applied as a cleaner at 24 hour fitness. (laughs) Nice. Like I just wanted like on Montgomery street.
0: Yeah, I went there a couple of
1: times. I just wanted to be in San Francisco. To me, America was so glorious, right? Like I thought, twenty four was like beautiful. Now knowing what the twenty four fitness in on it looks like, I'm very, very happy that I didn't get that job. But uh, I landed, I landed like a junior consultancy role uh, at the German American Chamber of Commerce, which is amazing. It's like uh, on Embarcadero Center, I know twentieth floor beautiful office, um, landed that job, and then kind of was introduced there into the the whole startup environment, right? All the other 20-year-old kids starting already to play with Bitcoin that was eight <laughs> years ago, seven years ago, um, and all these all these things. So I got fully immersed in just, hey, you you see something that you want to do, and you just start building it. Um, yeah, and I think that mindset I took took back to Munich after a missed day there.
0: Yeah, that, that sounds actually very similar to how I got to San Francisco. I didn't apply at 24 hours. But uh, I, I sent hundreds and hundreds of applications, and then someone finally took me, and it was an eye-opening experience. So yeah. yeah, being in San Francisco is is really great if you want to go into tech. Jumping from that part, you being in San Francisco, you being shaped by the failure and being basically screwed over fairly directly, apparently, to the the next thing that you built you built that for quite some time you said two and a half years right yeah and it was combining a passion or two passions of yours apparently right entrepreneurship uh, at that yeah. point and then also fitness maybe you talk a bit more about what you built there
1: cool i am under nda on that one so i need to see how much i can say but yeah just just stay high level essentially like the 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 big thing that we that I saw was that we have the opportunity to bring strength training closer to people. So I knew the uh, incredible benefits of physical training and I just thought they weren't accessible enough, right? Like you need to go somewhere and like lift heavy objects and it just, it just didn't seem intuitive, right? It just seems to be like exactly what Neanderthals were doing like 10,000 years ago. So not much progress has been done, right? They were lifting stones. We're lifting like shiny metal, object it just didn't seem right so we worked on on making this making strength training more accessible so you could do it at the home um we worked on making it um more fun and, and engaging so we would have like thinking about extreme content and all these things so very similar to what a peloton does today for cardio we were developing for strength training and um we had like a very particular way on how we would create or generate the resistance so the resistance that you would feel was instead of lifting an object through a gravitational field we'll have a electric motor create electromagnetic field um, that we could modulate um, through interface um, so that really changed the way you could interact with like a strengthening machine right the strengthening machine just changed the way it based on the way you behave so yeah that was
2: pretty cool yeah and 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 Felix like I mean you, you've kind of come across different businesses that you started yourself but also saw it from Wallace the other side I wonder um also, when, I mean, you sold the business and I'm, I'm sure you cannot share enough, but it, more about the strategic part of, of kind of building the business. What is something that you wouldn't, like you didn't know before, um, that you would have loved to know before that actually made yourself, let's say, more comfortable in building the business fast and also selling it at the end faster um, in a way that, that, is, that, that helped you um, less, more or less learn more about how to build a business the right way?
1: Interestingly, I feel like sometimes the mistakes, like there are some mistakes that you have to make yourself. It's not enough that someone just tells you something. So I feel like like some important lessons you actually just actually have to go through
0: the pain of. Do you you have an example for that? I think um,
1: one thing maybe that I value now more would be uh, like long-term co-founder alignment. Um, but I think that is extremely tough. I don't think that, will, that would have helped me much because at the time, we weren't thinking long-term. We were building this thing. We thought that it was amazing. Maybe it's just three months and we just built this project, we're winning all these prizes and hackathons. Um, we could have just said, oh, that was great. But I was just so passionate. I wanted to keep, keep on going, keep on doing it. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that is important, like, like how aligned the people are uh, that are starting the company probably for long-term success. Uh, but I'm not sure if that would have helped, right? Like, Because if, if you start vetting people like this, maybe it wouldn't even have ever started, right? If you come in like, mm, yeah, well, it's a long-term version, maybe it doesn't. So I'm not sure if that helps. Um, yeah, another thing is hardware is hard. That's what everyone says. And that's really true. It's like one of the truest things ever. Um, I can go more into detail on why it is like that, mm-hmm. that, but... Hardware is definitely extremely hard and I'd probably almost do it differently. I think Musk actually has a good example, right? Like you do a software company first, you make enough money to then be able to be the stupid guy to invest in hardware because you believe in it enough. But the problem is that with hardware, you cannot prove everyone else wrong without them believing in you first because you need their money to be able to do anything. right? Software, you just, I mean, you take your five friends, you go in the garage and you stay there for two months and you have something. With hardware, that's not... It's not going to work. You need the money to buy inventory and to build the stuff.
0: yeah, i've I've heard that from a couple of people at WC as well that we're building hardware. It's very different. and it's almost it's almost more comparable to like biotech or other things where you just needed a lot of investment upfront, right? Yeah. And then also the like the other thing, maybe you can tell me a bit more about that, is that many of the truisms in quotation mark of software, Startups just don't apply. For example, feedback cycles are so much longer because you can't test as quickly as you can t- test software, right? I-, I assume that's probably another problem. But maybe from your perspective,
1: that was actually something that we probably, as a company, were extremely good at
0: uh, quickly testing.
1: Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's called like the like rapid prototyping. Um, it's like a rapid prototyping movement that that yeah. rose up with like the three D printers, and we were in the very forefront of it. We did like eleven prototype iterations, I think, within like eight months that's probably almost as quick as you would do it as a, as a hardware. hardware yeah, platform.
0: that is, that is fairly so we quick. Would like
1: test certain features, like rapidly build our prototypes. Like every two weeks we had like new prototype iteration. We test like a different part of the hardware. I think that all these things we actually were doing tremendously
0: well. Um, so what was it about hardware that you think is that much more difficult? Is it only the capital or? Right. Yeah.
1: So I think the capital component is, is one of the biggest parts here. So, mm-hmm. uh, I think a very easy example from a, from a, from a math perspective and how you make the finance work um, is the following. If I want to make in hardware a million dollars in revenue, right? Then you would think, okay, what would the company be worth after I did that? And the issues with pure hardware companies, if you look at like GoPro and these things, they tank so much, it's basically revenue multiple of one, maybe two, right? So it's very little, very low. So meaning you made a million in revenue, your company's worth a million dollars. In hardware, to make your first million, you need to invest at least a million. In all the machines and everything, development and material, and take six months. So then you would go to an investor and say, "Okay, give me a million. I'm going to make a million revenue, and then my company is going to be worth a million dollars." The investor is going to say, "Even if I believe you, and there's zero risk, I need to take 100 of your company to make this investment work." Mm. Right. So then it puts you in the spot, and that's I think how a lot of hardware companies actually feel. They see this vision, like booster boards, they see this vision, and they're basically forced to create a different model. Like Peloton was able to make it work. I think we are able to make it work as well. But it forces you to say, okay, we are not just hardware. We are hardware and something else. Mm-hmm. But there are products where you are not something else. You're just hardware. And that, mm-hmm. that is just not something that, that you would want to raise venture money for. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. work, right? The venture money, they want like 30 extra returns and it just doesn't work because the revenue multiple isn't there. So that makes it financially super hard. And then all these other things come on top, right? Like you have to invest the capital much earlier. So you have all the capex that just like sitting there before the actual revenue and profit can be made down the line. So yeah, hardware is very tricky.
2: Yeah. I think it's interesting because I think, um, let's, let's take the example now and then we can of course also step into your existing business right now. But I think there are definitely some founders, potentially even in the listener base, that are interested in building hardware start- startups soon sooner or later. The question that I have is, I mean, you talked about kind of the differentiator between hardware and potential other services that you add on in to, the, to your hardware business. The question I have is, what would you recommend to people that are more or less interested in building hardware businesses, but might not have the capital yet in order to to build a first prototype? How should they think about prototyping for hardware businesses? And also, how did you more or less raise your first money based on, let's say, a prototype that was not fully functional uh, in the environment that you wanted to have it? Yeah.
1: So you definitely need to become a master of prototyping um, and just doing it. If you were with hardware, if, I mean, you usually need to start building. Like we literally for the first prototypes, we were in the, on the MIT campus. I literally remember us climbing behind the machine shop. Into the trash bag, trash cans to pick up like acrylic acrylic and stuff. Like we would literally go in the trash can and like take like 8020 and acrylic and we like take that out scrap materials to build our prototypes. Um, you need to be scrappy, like super scrappy. Um, and then we won just we would use we used to go to hackathons, unrelated to our project, with the goal to win it. And we took the money and we were really good at it for some reason. So our team was just very aligned. And we would go every two weeks, we'd go to a hackathon, and win like two thousand to five thousand dollars in prize money. Take that back, invest in our prototypes.
2: Nice. Okay, that's a good idea, actually. I think that's a good hack. <laughs> Thanks.
0: So being creative uh, about how you get the money and mm-hmm. materials is probably how I would sum it up and then just make it work. Uh, I think that's that's at least how it sounds. Um, okay, actually, we, we talked a lot about the things that you have done in the past, but now I would love to talk about what you're currently doing. And you already mentioned it, you are offering same day tests to people. Uh, Primarily in the LA area, but apparently also in Washington DC right now. Tell us a bit more about how you started with your first location. Like what do you actually have to do to set up a COVID testing company in the US? So I think let's start with the problem,
1: right? Why is this relevant? Like why should this exist? Um, You would think that the US is or should be very, very well-equipped to administer COVID tests, right? The, the, there's a lot of smart people here. There's a lot of biotech uh, should be able to do it. And actually, my belief is that if it was sufficiently organized, that they actually would be capable to do most of it. So let's say you took all the PCR machines, like you, you make a little list and say, how many PCR machines? PCR machines are the machines that you use to uh, amplify the little um, DNA string. Um, and basically see if there was COVID if there's like a if you have a COVID case um, and if you I think if you take the total capacity together say, so, okay they're running all the time I think then you wouldn't have issues uh, but what we saw what was the problem was it's no one was really used to Handle that quick volume, and no one was really forced to do that quick of a turnaround time for any test before. So, we had all these like incumbent things where people would use paperwork. So, we were going to the laboratory to visit it, and we were trying to understand what took them seven days because the machine runs for 60 minutes, right? So, why does it take seven days? And we could see it like there was a piece of paper, and they would copy the piece of they take this piece of paper, make a carbon copy of it then the next person types in the computer, the next person types it on the label, the next person types back in the computer, the next person, like it was ridiculous. Like it's like a whole stack of, of stuff and we looked at it and like, wow, the way the information flows, it just cannot work. So it was all about building custom software. Like how can you create, how can you make this process streamlined with software so that it's more secure and then also much more efficient? Um, It has a lot of challenges with it too, like you need to uh, know how to navigate the regulatory landscape, right? You're dealing with patient information that's extremely um, sensitive data, so um, there are regulations like HIPAA um, that you need to follow, so all the servers need to be encrypted. So it takes a little bit longer, but if if you know what you're doing and if your developers are um, kind of trained in that field, um, you can can get this done fairly quickly, and, and we did so that was the that was the first part, right? Like getting this the software solution ready, and then I think then the next part is I mean kind of a retail location right how would you do a retail location? you need to get the permits, you need to get insurance you need to get to sign a lease, and then you need to hire nurses you need to, yeah it's 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 a whole none of that is hard, like I mean like oh yeah, well, you hire a nurse, not hard, sign a lease, not hard. you just need to do all these things together as fast as you can
2: just to just to clarify um like and how do you how do you now solve the problem because I I, I totally see the problem it's existent across the globe hmm. um, yeah what do you do differently or how do you do it
1: so our technology I mean touches multiple points so the a laboratory has a laboratory information system that's like the software that runs the laboratory right? that connects a pcr machine with their computers and all these things and we basically in the back end build an API where we collect the data from the patient and then we securely transmit it to that L, like LIS, so we call it. So basically before the lab even receives the specimen, the system knows the sample is coming. The data is already in there. So from the laboratory perspective, now when our sample comes, they literally just take the scanner that they always use, they scan it and it auto-populates in the computer. And so that was the back end kind of optimization. The front end optimization um, looks a bit different, but the key piece is upon sign up, like the person signs up, he already gives us that information. So that's information we securely store and then we only verify it so that's a little manual right you come in the nurse is going to verify it with the password that your information is correct but no one re-enters it right So you just edit it edits it um, she scans the tube that she gives you and that in the back end assigns the tube to that person right so there's no manual writing at all so it assigns it to the person. We sent it. We submit that information securely to the laboratory, and then when the laboratory sees the sample, the
2: information is already there. So the nurse can actually focus on the testing part instead of kind of typing and getting. Yes.
1: Yeah. So we're cutting the time on the in the front end probably from like ten fifteen minutes for a check in to sixty seconds, and then in the back end we're cutting the time maybe for like a whole batch of stuff from like five hours to twenty minutes. Mm. Yeah, but the thing, the thing that you need to think about, it's not it's not actually the, the, the actual benefit is much larger, right? It, it Because it compounds, let's say you only have 20 hours and there's 100 hours of work before. So now you're 80 hours backlogged. So you're five days late.
0: That sounds pretty cool. I mean, five hours to mm. 20 minutes uh, yeah, yeah. And then also, it just improves so many things, right? It, it can reduce costs, which makes it more efficient for everyone involved. You can use this efficiency to get more people in to actually get tested. And the more people that get tested, the better it is for the whole economy and society, right?
1: So I think the thing that we understood, or oh, that, that, that the first thing that was clear to me is like everything is around turnaround time. Yeah. If you want to beat the virus, you need to get the turnaround time to as little as possible. I mean, imagine in the beginning. The, the biggest laboratory corporations here, LabCorp Request, uh, when physicians would send their patient sample, it took them, for, in some cases, three weeks to get the results back. By that time, you don't even have corona anymore, even if you had it. So I mean, how, how are you supposed to react or do anything about it, right? So, And even if it's four days, you can not reasonably assume that the whole population that gets tested is going to quarantine for 96 for oh, like four days you know it, it just doesn't
0: yeah so how quick how quick can you do it and maybe uh, i think
1: 80 percent right now like 80 mm-hmm. percent of our tests so we have two versions like we have one for insurance um mm-hmm. that's we don't prioritize that but like we we pay for priority and we like rush ship everything uh, yeah. with like a manual like with our own drivers to ensure that it's reliable and fast mm-hmm. so i think we are turning around 80 percent of our samples in less than 12 hours but we guarantee 24 okay so Like we think of like ninety nine percent of samples are returned like twenty four.
0: That's where the name is coming from. I mean, the vision. It's more the vision, right?
1: I know that we put ourselves in a tough spot, giving us that name, right? Same day testing. (laughs) It's it's a tough spot. So, first one is same day testing means like you can come and get tested the same day. That's not typical with the doctor's office. You need to make an appointment maybe several days in advance. With us, you can always make an appointment same day. But Mm -hmm. the vision, of course, is that you not just get your appointment the same day but also the results we we're able to get that in like yeah in quite a in, in, in quite a few cases um yeah. but not, not in all cases but that's yeah. the vision ultimately getting there
0: yeah, and it also depends when someone gets in right uh 8 a.m right. is different right. than 6 p.m in right. the evening right. yeah
1: so i think before like 1 p.m we have like 80 percent of the of the time we actually have it the same same day we don't advertise it anymore i did it in the beginning people are so angry when you don't get it in time it wasn't worth it so yeah. now I agree.
0: It's always better to promise something that's still good and then over deliver to promise something that's exceptional and then sometimes under yep, That's yep, one, of, yep. one of the learnings that I made. Yeah, so we yeah. are internally also a bit more conservative, even if we think we can be quicker. Okay, there, there are a couple of other questions surrounding um, the complexity of it, right? There's so many things that you have to take into account with this business specifically. So one thing that I'm very interested in is how do you ensure safety for all your employees and then also for yourself because you're probably out there a lot right with your employees yeah
1: so I mean I think you learn how I mean there are a lot of guidelines I mean that is that is the I think one of the good things about red tape there's also a lot of literature on what you have to do right so you know exactly all the procedures like it's 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 not rocket science, but you just need to be very diligent, right? So kind of what PPE, PPE do you need to wear, like how social distancing measures, like how how you sanitize the area. So there's like a very rigorous sanitation efforts. like we go through several thousand pairs of gloves, right? So there's every patient that comes, like there's a two new pairs of gloves happening with every interaction, new pair of gloves. So that, and then every time that we sanitize everything and we haven't had, we have as many as several tens of thousands of tests I think at this time and we haven't had a single case in our group that we had we had COVID cases now within our team but they were actually not exposed on the work at work so and, and I think that is that, that is pretty awesome that, that, we, that we were able to pull it off nothing that we do is, is we are looking mainly at outdoor spaces we are taking places where we have a space and
0: mm, that makes sense
1: and not much contained contain rooms, so, so we are focusing on like building drive-through sites and, and walk-up sites that are outside or have the, have the doors open. So, yeah, I think we were able to manage that fairly well, and then you have a very rigorous testing schedule. So, um, our employees get tested, everyone, several times a week, and uh, one thing that's extremely Beautiful about the PCR test, and it's something that a lot of people do not know is the PCR test is so sensitive it can pick up a virus um, before you're able to infect someone. So the viral load that you that is required to uh, to get you a positive test result on on a PCR test, for example, with ours, like the limit of detection, what you call it, is, is less than ten molecules of, of of the virus. So if you think about if you think of, about that, um, that means that if you have a rigorous testing schedule, let's say every three days, and it takes you, let's say, from infection, like three to seven days to be able to infect someone, you could always catch someone that has a positive run before he was able to infect someone else, right? So implementing that rigorous testing schedule, you can really prevent, uh, mainly also that, that any of our employees could give it to someone else, right? Because we would catch it when it was still so little viral load that you're not able to to, to retransmit, really or at least... Everything's probability, right? The probability is very, very low. Um, that's actually a model that we came up with, and not just on our behalf, but like the scientific community when the movie productions got back to work, right? They were thinking, well, how can we do this? We have all these actors coming back together. What can we do so we make sure that not if one person gets fake, that everyone gets infected? And they've been doing that very successfully, right? We will see a lot of Netflix productions and new movies coming out. The only reason that works is because they have this rigid, like very regular PCR testing schedule and PCR is important because it only works PCR tests, but where you get tested three times a week for the people that have um, a lot of contact with each other to make sure that the virus cannot circulate right, and infect everyone.
0: Yeah. Uh, maybe a follow-up on the different kinds of tests uh, because like, one thing that you often see Mentioned in the media and sometimes from credible sources sometimes from less credible sources is that like these super quick tests are like right around the corner and soon everyone can test for like five bucks Within like 10 minutes. Yeah, I haven't seen them. So maybe you can give me a bit of context here Yeah, I I mean when I saw
1: this like when it came out, I don't know when they announced it first They put Abbott here I think with Roche in Europe and they said it's coming out in August I Everyone was calling me and I just laughed I was like this is just not happening at all um, first the first problematic thing I think that's just pure science and I think that's a beautiful thing about physics right if you think about first principles like think about okay, what is possible right like, what is theoretically actual possible actually possible mm-hmm. so when you think about what is the mechanism that uh, how does PCR work right so it's a polymerase chain reaction so what you do is essentially you you take a selected piece of the of the virus and you you make primers that's essentially like a little different molecule that attaches to it on both sides, and you put it in a solution and you heat it up and cool it down, heat it up, cool it down. It's called thermocycling. And with each process of heating it up, you actually create a copy. So one becomes two, two becomes four, four becomes eight. So instead of having one, after 60, mil- 60 minutes, you, you end up with millions, right? So, so you amplify it. And then with the, the other one, you do not have that amplification. So now you're saying, okay, which one is more accurate? When you can imagine the one is basically having a huge, like, magnifying glass, right? You look at it, but now everything that you want to look at is millions of times amplified. You're like, ah, okay, it was there. With the other one, you don't. So it theoretically can never, right, can never be as accurate as the other one. Um, at least not in any reasonable time, in, in my opinion like not in the span of one or two years or three years. Because um, PCR, I mean, that has been around for for 10, like for decades, right? It's that's it's, it's a proven technology. It didn't come out of nowhere. Like it has been around, right? So we are not just going to invent new technology like this. And the second thing I think that gets people very confused is how do you measure, like what's the quality metrics, right? And you talk about accuracy, right? And accuracy is, is a mix of sensitivity and specificity. Both are important, right? Sensitivity. Is basically if there is a positive, right? How many times did you call the positive, right? And then specificity is like if there's a negative, how many times did you call it the negative, right? So I think the the problem is that that it's that we as as consumers are very easily fooled because it's 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 not just like oh yeah it's like five hundred horsepower, right? It's it's not as easy to understand. Um, so when they say that these engine or these rapid tests have a very good ac- high accuracy, right? That that's theoretically sounds good, mm. but there's just tons of issues with it. So the main one for the engine test to me is like when you look into the fine print, you, you get to the metric that I think is the most important one is limit of detection, right? What is the minimum amount of virus required to actually detect someone as positive? And, and so the usual limit of detection is a 95% confidence, right? So what is the minimum amount of sample that you need to be able to call someone correctly at 95% confidence? And with the kit that we are using, the PCR kit, that gets around five to ten, right, five to ten molecules. And with these antigen tests, you're talking hundreds to tens of thousands, right? So it's orders of magnitude off, mm-hmm. right? So significant difference, right? If that, someone needs to have like a hundred to a thousand times the viral load mm-hmm. to detect to detect it. Yes, accurate. But then when you look into the experiments, like, oh yeah, but it had a hundred times the virus in it.
0: Mm. Yeah, so basically, did I understand that correctly, that some of these tests are advertising a sensitivity or specificity with a certain percentage, but the threshold for actually measuring these values is like thousands of molecules? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it.
1: Uh, That's pretty much it. Okay, that's interesting. And then another thing I think that is a bit tricky is if you said it's 99% accurate, right? So you miss one out of 100. Mm -hmm. If that was like in, in the sense, like let's say it was false positive, that would be pretty bad, right? Let's say one in a million people have it. Imagine, right? imagine the scenario: right? one in a million people have it. So, at this rate of one in a hundred, you call wrong, you would call ten thousand people positive. So, you call ten thousand people positive, and there was only one. So, you. So then 99% suddenly doesn't sound that great anymore, right? You call, Out of 10,000 people, you call it 9,999 wrong. And you can say, that was 99% accurate.
0: Yeah. What's the accuracy on the PCR tests?
1: It, that one is close to 100%. Okay. Right? So you call nine point nine nine. Um. It's very hard for the PCR test to to at least, I mean, a, a false positive is, is very hard, right? So there's a lot of ways where it can go wrong still, right? So imagine you... You just didn't collect the sample well. Yeah. Right? So, if, there, if you are infected, but there is no virus on the collection kit, then obviously you cannot call it, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That, that, I think, is also one of the things. Like it's, so, it, when you want to be careful, so in our um, test reports, it says not detected, right? It does not say you don't have the virus. That's for the doctor to tell, right? The interpretation of it. Because we theoretically cannot know. We, as like, running it in the laboratory, we only see whatever you hand us had no virus on it. And we can say that with the basically 100% accuracy. But was the sample collected well enough? So that's why for us, we are paying, we're going the extra mile, and we're paying registered nurses. It's not required. We're paying registered nurses to be on site all day so we can make sure the specimens we collect are collected right.
0: Collection is actually like a quick... Uh, sub-question that I had because there's also a lot of rumors going around with how do you actually collect it right and what do you do if people push it too far down your nose and did you hear that?
1: Yeah there's yeah, so wow. one is called the nasopharyngeal. That's the one that people also named the brain swab, where they put it literally several centimeters deep, several inches deep, like mm-hmm. literally until it touches the back. From day one, we, I said, we are never going to administer that test. Never going to administer it. That is not, if you want to fight the virus, that is not how you do it. You scare, like you traumatize people to a level that they will never get tested again. If you do that to a kid, he is never going to get tested again. Right. And that is not how you solve the pandemic. Right. Even if that was a bit better, that's not how you can go about it. And then I think like I mean, pretty quickly after, like people realized, well, why do you want to put it all the way in the back? It's because okay, yeah, there's the highest concentration of the virus. Well, if you blow your nose right before, well, then the virus goes to the front of the nose. So you can just use a swap here. So that's what we do. Right. So just you think about it and it'll be a bit more innovative, and then you can find lots of ways and how you, how you don't have to scare people like that. Mm. So what we do is we have people blow their nose. So the virus is kind of coming to the front, and then we have a just a tuion nasal swab that goes less than an inch into the nose, so just in the front, much more
2: comfortable. Got it. Thanks, Felix, for for sharing that. I think super interesting for everybody that was kind of wondering what what was behind the like the the technicality of, of COVID tests. Um I think I have one more question regarding how well, what kind of skills you have in order to come up with more or less business solutions that might not be, let's say in your previous experience? I mean, you've worked in in a cancer detection company before, but the question that I have kind of re- looking at at your current business that it, it potentially well as far as I know at least, is a topic or a, a field where you not have been working at for the last kind of 10 years. And I wonder what kind of generic skills do you have or what kind of frameworks do you have that help you to access more or less themes and topics um, to build a business on top of them that might have not been on your radar for the the last 10 years, where you didn't do kind of scientific research about it. What has helped you to kind of start a business in a field um, where you were not potentially the expert in the last 15 years? Or how did you overcome that situation very fast to go very deep into the actual topic?
1: I think one of the biggest things is to figure out for yourself when to ask someone, like when to seek out expert advice and when to just sit down and think for yourself. And I think that's very true, especially in the field that I am in, we are in. There's some stuff around compliance and regulatory and, uh, and, uh, and laboratory infrastructure you need to talk to an expert about, right? In order for you to do this, right, you need to talk to an expert about this. But you need to understand, in order to do something really innovative, if you talk to an expert, you are by definition not really doing something very innovative because the expert has become an expert because was doing it for 10 years. So how innovative is it if someone else was doing it for 10 years already, right? Now, for us, it was okay. What now, sitting down, like, okay, what do people really need? Like, what do people really need? And it's like, okay, the problem is people can't get access to tests. Like, you need to go to doctor's offices, all of this paperwork. So you just need to say, okay, we need to get rid of all these different things. Can we get rid of them? And the answer to most of them is, is yes. Okay, well, we can get rid of the paper, building software. Well, we can get rid of like being indoors in these weird like doctor's offices with like small tiny halls and elevators by putting these things outside. Um, and then you can just like knock these out for yourself. Like, okay, these are the steps that we have to do. And like, these are the items here where I need to talk to an expert. But if I went to an expert and asked them, hey, we run a COVID testing site, I'm telling you, everyone would have said, it's a bad idea. Everyone did say, it's a bad idea. You shouldn't do it. It's so complicated. It wouldn't work. Um, but yeah, so you just kind of need to go through it yourself and be like, okay, what are the things that you can do? Like, And um, there are also things that, I mean, especially for us in the scientific, like working with scientists a lot, I, I think what I've realized is they have a diff- very different worldview on some of the things, right? when. And, and which is good. Right? In laboratory, you cannot do a mistake, right? Like you need to be fully on point. Like you, can, you have to be very, very efficient and compliant. And you, you you're not supposed to think outside of the box in, in that sense, right? You're not supposed to find any shortcuts. Like it's, it's procedures. If these people have, like these people have the ability to solve it, right? Like they are at the forefront of the technology, the PCR that actually has it. But they cannot do that innovation that's required on the retail side, and on the software side, because they're not willing to break things, right? So we need to just go out there and like do a quick deal with a with a landlord, right? Oh, we need to pull a permit together, boom, like all these things. Oh yeah, we just need to order tons of gloves and, and do this and just hire people on task grab it for just to set up palm trees to make it nice. No scientist would ever do that. So that's mm.
2: So it's it's kind of the, the the combination of being very hands-on, using first principles, but also knowing the people to talk to to find certain answers to open questions that you have, right?
1: It's almost like yeah, it's almost like really like understanding when you ask someone you don't ask, right? Is is this something that where someone else can actually provide value? Like is it really and if it's like something very innovative that you're trying to come up with, then in most cases you should probably not ask someone. You should just probably sit down and think. Mm.
2: Good point.
0: Yeah, I I actually can't stress this point enough. And it's also that something that I've learned in my startup experience, because if you talk to these people that have been in my case, working in like the finance industry for 20 years, they will always tell you what they've done for 20 years. And innovation for them is something that happened five years ago and some regulation in their state. So if you really want to do something new, sometimes just have to like think, I don't know how you do it, but for me, it's usually in front of a like blank sheet of paper or a whiteboard or just talking. To someone but in the interest of time since we know that you're busy you have to test a lot of people today mm-hmm. and even more in the next couple of weeks and months we we usually like to close it off with a content suggestion so do you have any favorite book podcast or like uh, preferably book or blog something to read that you would recommend to people or would you just tell them to just sit down and think more?
1: I read quite a few books lately and one I like the most trying to
0: find one it's like not the
1: generic oh yeah read zero to one read like your musk ashley Vance. i'm mean, like which one was one
0: yeah sapiens is my secret my secret you know that, that, that's like if you if you mention the Ooh, ones yeah. that, that everyone has already read or heard like 20 times being recommended I,
2: I feel, so yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: which was the other one from from harari so you did sapiens homo deus yeah that one was also interesting to me
2: uh, homo deus sapiens 21 lessons yeah yeah. I honestly, I mean, if yeah. someone hasn't
1: read like Hombodeos or Sabin, I think they should read. I think that's a great perspective on how you can combine like history and then it just shows so many interesting things, right? Like, how you can make not even talking about how correct everything is, but like just the way hmm. you can think about things. It's very, very enticing. I agree. Um, that's true. Yeah. I'm thinking,
2: what was a good one? Sometimes a generic one. It. But we still need a niche pick.
1: Yeah. I'll tell you guys. That. I need to think through what which, which one was one of the ones that I that I really enjoyed.
0: You can also tell us afterwards, and we just put it in the in the show notes. What's the one that you gifted last?
1: Did I gifted last. I gave someone. I got gifted. Someone gifted me blitzscaling. I'm reading that one right now. Um, mm. I kind of like. I think what we have to do as as like founders, is we need to tell people like the the early founding journey. Like we need to get more people to start founding. Blitzscaling is more like okay, now you've hit it. And how do you go oh, skyrocket? So I think something more about oh, prototype.
0: Okay. Yeah, we haven't we haven't recommended that yet, I mm. think. So blitz scaling it is. It's mm. I'm not sure if it's pu- oh yeah, it is. 15390. Um, it's called
1: Disciplined Entrepreneurship. By yeah. far the best book. Because like that is the book that I started my entrepreneurship career with. Mm. It's from a professor that sponsored me at MIT, Bill Alette. Um, several unicorns came out of his class already, like Pill Pack, et cetera. Um you have to read that book. It's it's like literally a mm-hmm. workbook. It's not like an enjoyable book. It's like, okay, you, this one, you take this, you do 24 steps, and you start great. the company like this. Step one, step two. 24 <laughs> steps <laughs> one. I think nice. it's like 24 steps of disciplined entrepreneurship. Something like this. I can look it up. It, 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 this one is great.
2: Nice. We haven't had that one.
1: And that's definitely, big. That's definitely niche pick. Thanks, Felix. Great. And I definitely
0: this send is... it to people too. So this is it. <laughs> we will figure it out and put it in the show notes. I like it. I literally, I literally have that somewhere laying around here, but I don't know where it is. Um, uh, but I, I also found it in a very niche blog post by someone, and I haven't heard about it before. But it's, it's really interesting. It goes, ah, uh, it, it goes about it in a very different way, right? It's not these high-level theories. It's just, well, now we have to do this, and then you should do this. So yeah, uh, I like the pick.
1: And, and it's like hits you in the place too, because there are things in there that you would like to avoid normally. It just says, okay. Like literally when we were in class, you worked it for like eight weeks already on your startup idea and it's now like, trapped. it's like find 10 customers. It's Monday. It's like by Wednesday you have 10 customers. If you don't, you cancel yeah. your project. And you're like, what? What? Like that's the stuff you want to avoid. And now you're yeah. on the phone, trying, frantic, do like get 10 LOIs on. Mm-hmm. And then I think 90% of the people did it. Right? So, but that just shows like, mm-hmm. everything's possible. But like, I think the good thing about it is like you kind of tend to focus on the mm-hmm. things that you really like to do. But this also shows the things that you might not want to do but you should be doing so i really recommend yeah
0: yeah i think In that's sense. a that's a perfect way to close it off just do it and also do the things you don't like you have to do the things you actually that actually keep the company moving forward and with that felix thanks so much for joining uh, good luck fingers are crossed and we speak soon